Well, good morning. Good to be here with all of you. Got to meet most of you uh, before the uh, time here together. We'll be in the, the Gospel of John today, John chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 1 to get our uh, context. Bring you greetings from Dominion Baptist Church in Birmingham. Uh, Pastor Mark Little, also my father-in-law, been going to that church 20 years, got saved there. Know of uh, pastors y'all have had this church, uh, Pastor Cardwell, dear friends with him, and uh, Pastor Hunter, various ones. Uh, so it's good to be here, finally, see, see y'all. So turn to the uh, Gospel of John, we'll begin reading in John chapter 1, we'll start in verse 19 to get the uh, context of our passage this morning. John chapter 1, begin reading in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God." The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Is that not what preaching is all about? We cry, Behold, the Son of God. They followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come. And you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and he stayed with them that day, for it was about the tenth hour, or 4 p.m. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, verse 43, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. 
Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, we had in uh, verse 29, the next day, and then verse 43, the next day, and now chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let's go for the Lord in prayer. Our Father, our God, we are grateful to be in your house this day with your people around your word to worship your son. We pray for your spirit to bless the word as it's preached. We thank you for Christ our Savior, for his glory that he's manifested to us through your word. Pray that His glory would be manifested in our presence this day by the help of Your Spirit. In the name of Your Son, we pray. Amen. So I want to look at uh, today the miracle of water turned to wine at the wedding at Cana. Now, I realized that Bethany and Tim have a wedding in six days. That was not the, uh, the inspiration behind selecting this text. I've been thinking about this text for quite some time and decided it was finally time to do some study in-depth on the text, compose a message. So that is what I have with me uh, this morning. And we understand that, that few things have deeper roots in antiquity than marriage. Marriage is one of the oldest uh, created institutions of God. We might even say that the planning in eternity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to go and seek a bride for the Son of God, even predates time, if we can, we can use those terms. Uh, the first act of infant society in Genesis was a marriage, the uniting of the first man with the first woman. Our 
first parents, Adam and Eve. And approximately 4,000 years later, fast forward very fast to John chapter 2, we have another first that takes place against the backdrop of a wedding, the first miracle of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so with the understanding that Jesus came to seek his bride, it's no surprise to us really that his first miracle was at a wedding. John the Baptist, we read in the scriptures, came neither eating nor drinking, but the Son of Man did come eating and drinking. Here we have Jesus attending a wedding. Jesus was not some hidden mystical teacher off somewhere isolated. He was in society. He fellowshiped with folks. And we have him attending this wedding, coming, eating, and drinking. Everett Harrison comments, having just declared himself to be the Son of Man, Jesus now shows that his tabernacling among men included his sympathetic help. There's a problem at this wedding, as we'll come to see. Jesus is the Son of Man. He comes, He dwells with man. He redeems fallen mankind, ruined by Adam and his rebellion. And in this narrative, we have a sweet harmony of the humanity and the divinity of our Lord together, both set forth. The compassionate Son of the Virgin doing the heavenly will of His Father. Doing the will of His heavenly Father. In verse 1 we have there, if you look at the text, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And the exact location of the Cana mentioned here in our text is unknown. There are very two small villages. One is approximately four miles north of Nazareth. The other eight miles uh, northwest of Nazareth. And there, if you look in the Bible dictionaries, there are several other um, suggestions. But most people agree it's one, one of these two. And Jesus, as we know, is from Nazareth. And being close to the place where Jesus grew up, uh, he may have known the bride and groom that are married here. Uh, commentators differ on whether Mary knew or was related to the bride and or groom. Mary had some knowledge of what was going on at the wedding. It's possible she it was one of her brothers or sisters and nieces and nephews getting married. Uh, in any case, a wedding in, in, in a small town such as Cana would have been a, a large event. John MacArthur um, on this text mentions that Nazareth, the population was about 500 folks. Not much. Cana, maybe a few dozen at best. So a wedding in a small village like that would be a huge event. I mean, Bethany, Tim, y'all don't have, Lord willing, a lot of folks, y'all's wedding, y'all have some, some circles. So in this wedding, you probably would have been the whole village out to this wedding. Quite an quite a event, for sure. We already saw that this was on the third day. Uh, we saw the, the narrative there in John, how he moves on uh, verse 29. We see the next day. Uh, and then the next day again in verse 35, two happenings. And then the next day, verse 43. And then on the third day, introduces our uh, time table for us today. And in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, we won't turn there, but we read there in the last days of men forbidding uh, marriage and requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. God has given us so many good Flavors, And I'm so glad he gave us a tongue that takes all that in. Uh, it's a wonderful gift of God. That More of that common grace our brother Sean was talking about. 
And those who would advocate for a monastic sort of lifestyle, the idea that Christians need to just be removed completely from society, go hide out in a, in a monastery somewhere, here they're given uh, three reasons to ponder why our Lord should attend a wedding. You have the enjoyment of good things, food. You have interaction with society, taking part in, in a wedding. And then um, marriage itself. That celibacy is not somehow more spiritually... Um, on a higher plateau than being married is. I, I know I don't have the gift of singleness. I'm very grateful for my, my help me, Rebecca. So, we have uh, several reasons here. Those who would claim that uh, monasticism, hiding away, uh, is the, the, the idea for the Christian. We have several things here that, are, that cause one to ponder. Um, more so, those who believe celibacy is more spiritual, but they don't realize if their parents chose that route, they wouldn't even be here. So, you know... A little, little bit to chew on there. But uh, verse 1, we have, third day there was a wedding. Jesus comes, eating and drinking. And he find out that his mother was there. Moving on to verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. We have a uh, statement here. The mother of Jesus is already there. We read in verse 2 that Jesus was invited to this wedding. Jesus, the friend of sinners, no doubt had friends in the neighboring villages where he was. Who wouldn't want to be a friend with Jesus? He was never a bully. He was never mean to anybody growing up. Jesus never gave you bad advice. Jesus never wronged you or frustrated you. Who wouldn't want to be friends with Jesus? No doubt. Uh, Jesus was the best friend to have and is the best friend to have today. We also read in John chapter 10, verse 22, that Jesus attended the Feast of the Dedication, which this, if we, if we do a little research into Jewish history, we find out was not a divinely instituted holiday, the Feast of Dedication that Jesus attends in John 2. This was a holiday that the Jews had where they celebrated after the Maccabean Rebellion, taking back the um, tabernacle, the, the temple, I mean, in uh, 164 B.C., they celebrated that. Their lands have been taken. They're coming back in and taking them back. And so it was the feast of rededicating the um, temple there. And they celebrated this. It was not a divinely instituted holiday. Jesus still attends it. So it uh, left us an example. We may celebrate the, the good graces of God. Marriage, even a national holiday. These are, these are gifts and graces of God. We can celebrate without... Uh, Shame. R.C. Trench writes on this passage, None need wonder to find the Lord of life at this festival, for He came to sanctify all human life, to consecrate its times of joy as its times of sorrow, the former, as all experience teaches, needing above all such a consecration as only His presence, bodily or spiritual, can give. Jesus Christ consecrates these things uh, to us. Jesus was also invited with his disciples. As we read in John chapter 1, he picked up quite a few in just the day, just a couple days that preceded the wedding. We saw that he picked up Philip and then uh, Nathaniel, John, Andrew, Peter. So it's Jesus and at least these five that are coming with him to the wedding. But then in verse 3, we run into a bit of a problem at this wedding. I'm sure y'all been to weddings where there were problems. If there were any of mine, I was blissfully unaware because I had two eyes full of my bride. But there, there may have been some. But uh, this wedding, there is a problem. And that problem is the wine has run out. 
the principal drink at the wedding is no more. And this wine runs out. The mother of Jesus comes to him and says, they have no wine. And this text may be problematic for um, some who teach that the scriptures forbid the consumption of alcohol. I understand that's a sensitive issue. Uh, some make the, the claim, some Southern Baptists take the stand that it's always, in all cases, forbidden. Wouldn't want to uh, give anybody license to indulge in that if there's a temptation there. But the scriptures do tell us that wine is a good thing. They do tell us that wine is a, a good thing. Judges 9.13 says, But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and man? Go hold sway over the trees. Wine that cheers God and man. And then Ecclesiastes 9.7, we read, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God's already approved what you do. And then um, we have in 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul telling his young protege, Take a little wine for your stomach. There's some benefits from that back when they didn't have all the medicines that we do today, all of the um, knowledge of, of medicine. Uh, we understand that wine is not sinful, the abuse of it is. Just want to make that, make that clear. Wine's not sinful, it's the, the abuse of it. Just like the marriage bed's not sinful, it's the abuse of it that is. Money is not sinful, it's the abuse of money that is sinful. Uh, we, want, we want to have a, a biblical view of, of these things. Power is not sinful, the abuse of it is. There are things that God's given to us that are good and right when they're used in good and right ways, not abused. So, uh, God has given us wine to gladden the heart of man, Psalm 104.15. And no doubt, um, the hearts are glad at this, this wedding. Uh, wine was the principal drink in, um, in, the, the, in Old Covenant Israel. They didn't have you know, all the flavors of soda that we do today, punch and everything else. You know, juice that they would have made would have spoiled very quickly in that arid climate. So wine was what they, what they had. So, we understand that um, scriptures allow for the proper use of that, but we want to bear in mind Romans 14.21. It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. We understand that our Lord uh, here makes use of it, even used it in the institution of the Lord's Supper, the fruit of the vine, which was uh, lingo in Old Covenant Israel for wine. So, Mother Jesus notes this absence, tells Jesus. And we might pause here that, the, that uh, the mother of Jesus, Mary, as we know her by name, goes to Jesus and says they have no wine. Now, this might be puzzling to us if we, if we read all the way through to verse 11 that this miracle was the first of Jesus' signs. Jesus hasn't done any miracles prior to now. So, on what grounds would Mary suppose Jesus was going to do a miracle? He'd never done one before. This was his first. And so we, we ask ourselves this question. Um, again, like Jesus, the, the, the friend of sinners, Jesus would have never steered his mother wrong in anything. He was a perfect child. Mothers in the room. Surely there's a little envy for Mary that she got to have the perfect son. I know my mother doesn't have one. She has uh, one very imperfect and one slightly less imperfect uh, son, but Mary had a perfect son, and she, he, he never steered her wrong in anything, and she was a, a, an example to, to him. And uh, to summarize, uh, John MacArthur, again, 
it's possible that Joseph had already passed away at this point. Joseph is not in the picture um, for most of the life of Jesus. He's there at the beginning and then quickly fades out. Um, we see Mary all through the life of Jesus. She's going to be there right at the foot of the cross um, getting the charge from Jesus, or John getting the charge from Jesus to care for Mary. So Mary's in, in the picture the whole time. Joseph quickly disappears. Perhaps he passed away. We're, we're not told. But it's possible that Jesus, being the firstborn son of Mary, would have assumed the role of breadwinner in that home. Not a, not a uh, far out idea at all. And so Jesus, in his, in his role as breadwinner, would have made the best financial decisions, exercised the best leadership in that home. What an amazing uh, thing that would have been to behold. In, in making decisions for his mother, caring for that house, he would have made all the best ones. Never second-guessed himself. Never, wonder, well, you know, I could have done that a little bit better. No, no, none of that on the part of Jesus. He was a, uh, the perfect leader. And so it's possible that Jesus was, I think, the, the leader figure here. Mary would have known. Go to Jesus. He's always got good advice. He always knows what to do in every situation. Uh, we don't want to assume that, that Jesus was late to this festival. Uh, as Calvinists, we don't believe we're ever late. We, we, we're, we're, we're right on the time we were predestined to be. We're ne- never late. Um, but we have no reason to assume that Mary was trying to manage the expectations of a thirsty son and five disciples. Like, well, good that you're here, but we don't have any wine, so if you're thirsty, you know, too bad. No, n- none of this. Um, I think Mary did expect a miracle. I still think that was an undercurrent to her request, that Mary expected a miracle. Mary knew that she gave birth to the Son of God. We, we sing the song around Christmas time. Mary, did you know? Well, if you read Luke 1, she knew. Mary knew who she was giving birth to, that He was the Son of God, even calls, her, her sa- even calls Him her Savior, Luke 1, 47. So this idea that Mary is a, a, a perfect virgin and, and neat, doesn't she atones for us or intercedes for us is a bunch of nonsense. Mary needed a Savior just like everyone in this room. And her Savior was the same as everybody else in this room who's been saved. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. So Mary goes to the Lord, says they have no wine. I think there is an a expectation of a, a miracle here. The last miracle that happened to her was thir- or the last miracle that happened was about 30 years ago and it happened to her. A virgin gave birth. That had never happened before. But it happened according to the promise of God, Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel. The Hebrew literally means God with us. So, I think Mary did expect a miracle, and her words convey a deep hope. Mary clearly wasn't telling Jesus what to do. She doesn't come with any commands. She just tells him to have no wine. Four simple words. Just a simple uh, statement. No commands from the mother of our Lord to to him. I think Mary knew what he could do. At the very least, she knew she had a wise son. He's going to give us some advice. If he doesn't do something, he'll at least give some instructions that will uh, help this, this problem out. So, verse, uh, verse 4, Jesus answers her. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And some people might 
take a step back at that, that statement of our Lord in verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Like, boy, that's harsh. That's kind of grating. Woman? I mean, we don't, we don't, we're not here calling our wives and mothers woman. It seems almost derogatory. And that's, that's also um, not the case. Um, at the foot of the cross, we mentioned before, Jesus gives the charge to John to take care of his mother. Okay, Jesus, if anybody kept the fifth commandment, which, what's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. Y'all got that one? Honor your father and mother. If anybody kept that, it was Jesus, perfectly. So he's not speaking in any kind of derogatory terms to his mother here. When he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? This is the same term he's going to use as he's hanging on the cross, dying, and he charges John says, woman, behold your son. He charges John to care for his mother, and in that compassionate moment, still calls her woman. This was in the time of, uh, of Israel, natural customary greeting. In the south, we say, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That's our greeting. People up in the north may think that's derogatory. Know some people that come right here, they don't want to be called ma'am. And if you go to the gas station, they call, you know, sugar and honey and baby and all the other stuff. That's just how they speak down here. Well, that's how they spoke in Israel. They said woman. It's nothing, nothing wrong with that, nothing harsh, nothing derogatory meant in the use of the word woman. So Jesus tells her, woman, what does this have to do with me? He basically says, what, what? What, what is this to me, to you, is, is how the Greek literally reads. What, what is this? This is a, a, a small um, thing, a gentle rebuke from the Lord. What, what does this have to do with me from the lips of our Savior? Uh, Jesus is telling Mary that I've come to do the will of my Father in heaven, not the will of my mother on earth, is what Jesus is telling her. And this text, again, causes problems for the uh, Catholics, Roman Catholics, who believe that you have to go to Mary to get to Jesus. Look, look at the, this is the only time in Scripture we're told Mary went to Jesus and said something. And his response was a general rebuke. You really want to go to Mary and ask her to go to the Son for you? I don't think so. I don't think so. We go straight to the Father through the Son. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator. There's only one way to the Father. And that's through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's no praying to, to saints to ask Jesus like Jesus is some far off guy you who know, got a lot of stuff on his desk, really busy. It takes a saint to come into his presence. No, if you're saved by the blood of the Lamb, you are a saint. And you have access to the throne. You're a priest before God. If you're a believer, born again, saved by the blood of Christ, you have access to Him, access to the Father through the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. We don't need to pray to Mary to go to Jesus for us. But it happens to be that the will of Jesus' earthly mother, that Jesus do something about this problem, was also the will of His heavenly Father. As we'll come to find out, He tells her, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. God's work, Jesus' work on His own timetable. God the Son marching to the beat of His own drum. Not going to have Mary call the shots anymore, and He tells her that. I've lived under your house. Now, it's time for me to do the will of my Father in Heaven. There's an authority here. That's an authority switch. Jesus is now acting on His own initiative. He's not under the... Um, the control, the, the dictatorship of his, his mother. It says, my hour is not yet come. 
Eve expected Cain to be the Messiah and was gravely disappointed. She said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Right after the Lord promised her that the son of the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And Eve finally gets that seed and says, I've got a man. Wasn't the Messiah. Not even close. The first murderer, by the way. So, mothers in Israel had to wait 4,000 years until this Messiah comes on the scene. And so Mary would have to wait for the hour of his exaltation. Jesus Christ is going to be exalted. Don't worry about that. He's going to um, do the will of his Father, and the Father is going to glorify the Son. No doubt there. So, Mary would have to wait for the hour of his exaltation. Jesus, again, would would pick up this language. John makes use of the, the time, the phrase, My time has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. Again, in John 7, 6, John 7, 8. In John 12, 23 through 28, and in John 17, 1, we finally hear, my hour's come. John 17, 1, which opens the high priestly prayer, where we have something so precious in the Word of God. We have the Father and the Son together. The Son communing to the Father, making His requests known. We have an a, uh, audience in the personhood of God, the, the Trinity of God, between the Father and the Son. We have an audience to that communication and he says my time has come my time has come the time has come now for me to die to be buried to be resurrected as our brother Sean already mentioned that now be exalted at the right hand of God the Father now is the hour and says G. Campbell Morgan his first reference to the hour was to his mother and the last to his father Jesus is working with his father they're on that same timetable working together And before the Son of Man is glorified, he must endure suffering. Before his hour of exaltation, exaltation, there must be the season of humiliation as he suffered for the sins of his people. There must come that season. My hour has not yet come. Jesus got everything in line. Everything's on schedule. Nothing late in the sovereign will of our God. So moving ahead to verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) That's it. Mary bows out. Doesn't say anything else to Jesus. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And these are good words from Mary. These are very good words from Mary. This is the best advice anybody's ever been given. Whatever Jesus says, do that. Nobody's ever given any better counsel than that. So Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Still, there's that... That undercurrent, the hope of a miracle, that Jesus is going to exercise his power, do something miraculous here at this wedding. She tells him, do, tells them, do whatever he tells you. Mary submits here to the authority of Jesus, and like an obedient Christian, would have others do the same. So she tells them, do whatever he tells you. Westcott, uh, B.F. Westcott notes of Mary's words to the servants, the command is wholly unlimited. To the servants. All is left to Christ. Whatever he says, do that. I've learned to trust him these 30 years as my son. He's never been wrong about anything. He's the son of God. Whatever he says, you trust him. You can take it to the bank. So, what would be done and how it would be done is in the hands of the one who framed the universe. That's right where we want it. We want everything, all our lives to be in the hands of God. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's where exactly where we want it. In his hands, nothing is wasted. Not our trials, our hardships, our inconveniences at weddings. Nothing's wasted when it's in the hands of our Lord. And that's right where we want it. Verse 6, John chapter 2. 
We read, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Pretty big water pots. This is before you could get Dasani and Aquafina and Crystal Geyser and all that stuff bottled up nice and clean. They had had, uh, traveled through the sand. They had water pots there so you could wash your hands. They didn't have all that sinks and stuff you could just easy turn on. They had those pots there so people could um, get themselves cleaned up. We well remember um, the story from John 13 where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Traveling in that sandy climate, you get nasty wearing sandals and stuff all the time. They didn't have these nice cars we got with air conditioning and keep all that uh, bugs and stuff out of your face. They didn't have any of that. So they needed, they needed to be uh, cleaned when they came somewhere. They uh, had these pots out expressly for that purpose to accommodate the guests at the wedding. And these Jewish water pots also represent Judaism. They're empty. They're empty. Before Jesus puts wine in that represents the new spirituality, Christianity, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. That's what he called the wine at the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood that he institutes. The old covenant is ready to pass away. Says Hebrew eight, Hebrews eight six, ready to pass away. The new covenant has come, and Jesus does tell the servants something to do. Fill these jars up to the brim. Fill these jars up to the brim. These Jewish pots they were not uh, part of any Old Testament command. They were just there for the simple purpose of accommodating guests. They could clean up a little bit. Jesus tells them what to do with these jars. Fill them up to the brim. There will be no room for the servants to add anything. Fill the jars with water, we read in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Don't help me. Don't put any of this powdery mix in there trying to make anything up. Just fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. The work would be entirely of Jesus. It was the servant's part to act in faith and fill the jars with exactly what Jesus told them to and to the level that he told them to. That was their part, to obey in faith. The miracle will be left up to Christ. And that's our part in our lives too. We're to do what God tells us to do and leave the miraculous stuff to him. We follow his commands. He says, take these jars, we take these jars. He says, fill them with water, we fill them with water. He says, up to the brim, up to the brim. Yes, Lord, yes, amen, Lord. And we leave everything else up to him. He'll take care of the rest. It's our part to obey. And they filled them up to the brim. We read that they obeyed till they could obey no further. And they would come to find to the extent you obey God, you are blessed by God. They obeyed Him up to the brim. And they were blessed with that much wine. To the extent you obey God, you are blessed by God. Up to the brim they filled them. And it's only after we have done all God has said may we expect a blessing from Him. They obeyed, filled Him up to the brim. They did all that Jesus said. Now we're waiting on Him, Lord. Now we're waiting on Him. Jesus gives another command. The servants are still obeying at this point. Mary's word still ringing uh, in their ears. Concerning the commands of our Lord, he gives another one in verse 8. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Another command there in verse 8. And when the water was changed, we know not. We don't know. When it was changed, that's 
Uh, we could pontificate and speculate. That wouldn't prove anything. Um, says Alexander McLaren, it's not even he spake and it was done, but silently he willed. And the conscious water knew its Lord and blushed. This is the glory of the incarnate word. The word that framed the world. Everything you see driving through this wonderful state we call Alabama, anywhere else you travel. Everything made by the word of the Lord. And hear the word again, recreating. God created all things and he recreates all things. He's making all things new. And here he creates wine out of water. This is the glory of the incarnate word. And truly, we know, in the Lord Jesus Christ, all things hold together. Colossians 1.17, by him a whole universe was framed and it holds together. We have God speaking, there's the word, the spirit hovering, the trinity involved in creation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe here, um, changing the consistency of something created, altering it. And it's done in less than a moment, a split second. We don't know when. They were filled and they drew it out and it was wine. Amazing. Marvelous. And Jesus gives another command. Take it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast had no idea what transpired. Let's look at verse 8. He said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. We'll, we'll, we'll pause there. The master of the feast, he had no idea what had just transpired. All this is going on behind the scenes. The master of the feast is probably overcome with embarrassment. This master of the feast would have been what what we call a um, wedding coordinator, wedding director. Kind of, you know, overseeing stuff, making sure, you know, things are looking tidy and everything, you know, the plates are staying full, there's enough seats for folks, and the air conditioner's still running, all that good stuff. So the, the master of the feast would have been in charge of all these things. It would have been his job to make sure the wine didn't run out. Now that it's run out, he's probably overcome with a little bit of embarrassment. So he's thinking, okay, well, you know, what, what, what harm could a little taste of this beverage do? You know, hey, hey here we go. Verse 9, might as well um, have a, a little taste, see, what, see what's going on. They're asking me to taste this stuff, sure, go for it. And... The, the drawing out and taking to the master of the feast is again an act of faith on the part of these servants. All these men knew was that they obeyed Jesus when they put water in the pots. That's all they knew. All they knew is they obeyed Jesus. They acted in faith when Jesus told them to take it to the master of the feast. For all you know, they could be bringing him water. They just obeyed Jesus. That's all they, they had. And so it is for the Christian that we are commanded uh, by Christ to obey his gospel. The gospel is not a suggestion, it's a command. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. The gospel is a command, not a suggestion, not advice, as Brother Sean pointed out. It's a command for us to obey. And when we take from, from Christ's sacrifice, from the provision of himself, bring that new covenant in his blood, when we bring that to the master of the feast, God the Father who is preparing the wedding feast for his Son, We have several parables about that where guests are being invited. When we carry the provision of Christ to that master of the feast, he's infinitely more pleased with it than this master of the feast was with this wine here. Infinitely more pleased. And we read 
in verse 10 of the, the, the astonishment, the delight that the master of the feast had. Master of the feast said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Kept the good wine until now. Now, Jewish weddings typically lasted one week. That's a long time. I know y'all plan on one day. We did too. We, one week, I mean, that, even with our best friends, that would be a whole lot of food, a whole lot of partying. We, 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 we spent a fair portion of our honeymoon taking naps. Just go ahead and put that out there. The wedding planning was uh, quite, quite uh, lengthy. But uh, anyway, Jewish weddings typically lasted one week, and the bridegroom was the one that was supposed to have everything stocked up. Okay, in the Jewish culture, the, the wedding typically happened, well, here's how it would go. The, the young man who was interested in marrying the young lady would get his house ready. You typically had some real estate, have property with structure on it, got it ready, all furnished, painted colors, all the, got the wife to pick all the colors out and painted you know, everything up, and provided all the food, got everything ready for the feast, and then it was time for the wedding to begin. And it was at the bridegroom's house. They had the wedding in the home of the bridegroom and the bride. And so for the bridegroom to run out of wedding, to not supply enough wine, the, the father-in-law is probably thinking, oh boy, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting my daughter to care for this girl the rest of her life, and he's already running out of stuff on the wedding day. He's probably having some second thoughts himself. He might be just as embarrassed as the master of the feast. But uh, there was supposed to be one full week of celebrating, and in, during this week, um, they would put out the... the, the, the the good wine first, when everybody's palate is still fresh, you're trying to make first impressions, and then, you know, after everybody's maybe a little bit, you know, kind of tired of the party, not really drinking so much, and then you get the poor wine out. And uh, this is the observation made by the master of the feast there in John 2.10. Everyone serves the good wine first. People drunk freely the poor wine. He, this is the best wine he, he ever tasted. The, the, it's the best wine anybody ever tasted. Um, there was no vineyard planting. You know, making wine is a lengthy process. You've got to plant the vineyard. Then you've got to harvest the grapes. Then the grape juice has to go through the fermentation process. And it is, it's a very lengthy thing. But here we have the Lord of all creation who made all things, and without Him nothing was made that is made. Same Lord who fashioned the heavens, the stars, the seas, the oceans, all they contain by His Word. Same one made water into wine in an instant. It was the best wine anybody ever tasted. No doubt about that. This was the work of our Lord, His handiwork. From His perspective, that's not very surprising. From the human perspective, that's amazing. All that God bypassed turning this water into wine. And, and, and we know, keeping with the, uh, the Jews here, everyone serves the good wine first. You folks generally put their best out first. Uh, when you go on a first date, you tell your date what you consider to be the best things about yourself. You kind of hide the little dirty bits and, and don't, don't, don't put out all your dirty laundry, so to speak. Folks generally put their, their best first. And uh, only after you've gone on many dates or perhaps even been married to one another for a while do the unsavory bits and poor qualities and character flaws come out and, and such. But folks generally put their, their best first. This is no surprise um, to us. And what, what's sad about that is that also men generally want their best life now. They want their best life now. They want, they want prosperity. They want peace. They want nice you know, cars and houses and money and 
you know, all their children go to nice universities and la da la da and all the, the, the whole kit and caboodle. And they don't want to wait for eternal blessings because they have two eyes full of this world uh, and no faith in God's promises. But it's frequently the way of the Lord to save the best for last. That's true for all of us Christians in this room. The, the best is coming at the last. God has saved the best for last. Uh, we read in, um, in the Scriptures, I, I forget where, but um, eye has not seen, ear has not heard all the glorious things that the Lord has prepared for those that love Him. We are, in our, in our, when our imagination is running wild, we cannot imagine how good heaven is. We can't imagine even a drop of the ocean of goodness that is heaven. And God is saving that for us. That gets me excited. That, that, that's why I get up in the morning and uh, looking forward to being with my, my Lord. But there are many around us who are perishing. Folks have two eyes full of this world. John, again, in his little epistle that I'm going to be preaching on next month at my church, 1 John 2.15, stop, he says, stop loving the world. Stop loving the world. It's a command. It's an imperative in the Greek. Love, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in it. There's two kingdoms and, and two families. Eternity only knows of two kingdoms, two families. There's kingdoms of this world. There's kingdom of heaven. There's the kingdom of man. There's the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of material possessions and stuff. It's all wood, hay, and stubble going to burn. And then there's the spiritual kingdom that lasts forever. There's two families. There's children of darkness. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. And then there's family of God. And you're in one of two kingdoms, one of two families. There's no middle undecided party. You're in one or the other. Every one of us. So, the best for last. And he says, when the people have drunk freely, verse 10, when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine is served. But you've kept the good wine until now. And drunk freely, we want to make a note on that. This does not imply the guests were drunk. If that had been the case, Jesus would have rebuked them for their sin. You can be sure of that. He's not going to make more wine for people that are already slobbering, drunk, falling around all over the place. No, Jesus would have called them out on that immediately, as he did many other times. We called out the money changers, different folks, brood of vipers, Matthew 23, full of the, the seven woes. And Jesus was not afraid to call people out. If they had been sinning here, he would have called them right out. When it says drunk freely... They, their, their taste for it has kind of worn off after the week of, of, of the celebration of the wedding. They're a little bit tired of it, ready to go home. Um, you, can, you can be sure that Jesus would not supply more wine for those who are already uh, drunk. He would have not aided them in our sin. Isn't it good that God doesn't aid us in our sin? He fights us in our sin. Calls us back to Himself. And out of our sin and sorrow and bondage. So verse 11, we read that this is the first of His signs that Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested His glory. Oh, there's the climax right there. He manifested His glory. This, the first of His signs. You know, some, some, you'll hear some people talk about how in Joseph's carpenter shop, you know, when they needed a board stretched, Jesus kind of stretched it out when they sawed it off too short or, or whatever. Now, this was the first of Jesus's. Miracles. There, there were none prior to this miracle. This was the first miracle of our Lord, the first of His signs. And we read, He manifested His glory. He manifested His glory. John wrote in John 1.14 that He, uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we have seen His glory. Glory is very often linked with sight in the Scriptures. Uh, it's something visibly magnificent, something glorious. We've seen His glory. John tells us that He was an eyewitness of the glory of Jesus, and it started right here at the miracle, at the wedding, at Cana. And this miracle showed the glory of the presence of Jesus, that He would condescend to visit with sinners. Does that not blow your mind? I get tired of being with myself. I'm sure my wife gets tired of being with myself. But Jesus condescends and loves to be with sinners. He's a friend of sinners. That is good news. That is a glorious thing. And it's manifested here for us. And there's also the glory of His compassion. The compassion of our Savior. That He would literally cater to the desires of this married couple and their guests. Provided something physical for them. Provided for a need when there was a lack. The compassion of our Lord. He, Jesus could have done a lot of things. Could have showed his miracles, his power in a lot of ways. He condescended to cater to their desires. Provide, provided for them. That they might have joy. That the feasting, the celebration might continue. Manifested the glory of his power. That all the elements of earth and sky do whatever he desires at the instant he desires it. That water obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ. It changed to wine. What shames me is that I'm not as obedient as that water is oftentimes. That I don't do what my Father tells me to do, what my Savior tells me to do all the time. We never have creation. Well, that's amazing. In the beginning, when God made all things, He only made one thing in His image. Men and women, human beings. That's the only thing made in the image of God. And it's the only thing in all of creation that ever disobeyed God. The stars are still rotating like they've been told to. And the tides are still coming in and out like they've been told to. And the animals are still doing the stuff they do because they've been told to. And the plants are still growing because they've been told to. It's human beings, the very thing made in the image of God, that are the very problem. We're the ones that sinned against God. Nothing else broke God's created order. We did. We did. And so the responsibility is ours for our sin and our rebellion. Jesus tells the water to become one, and it is. Oh, that I would obey that rapidly to that same degree. Do what my Father tells me to do at the moment He tells me to do it. Charles Simeon writes on this text, Whatever might be their wants for the body, he, Jesus, could supply them in an instant. Or whatever might be their necessities for their souls, he could make ample provision for them in the hour of need. And if in this instance he had wrought a miracle to give them what might have easily been dispensed with, the problem of having no wine, okay, too bad. What could he not do for them which was essential to their well-being either in time or eternity? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. None of us here has the power to make water into wine. So when you see somebody that's got that power, that's like, whoa. <laughs> that's, a lot, that's power. That's power. That's somebody I can trust with my, my soul. Jesus gave them wine from water. Joy provided for the lack of this married couple. Nathaniel asked in uh, John 1.46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You think Nathaniel got his answer? I think so. I think he got his answer. Philip said, come and see. And here we saw, he saw. Glory was manifested at Cana in Galilee. Glory was manifested. Philip saw. Nathaniel saw. All the disciples saw. They believed on, 
on him. The whole purpose of John writing his gospel was so that the reader would believe on him. A lot of times in the scriptures you'll have the purpose for a book, uh, why it was written, given at the beginning of the book. Here in John's gospel we have toward the end the purpose. You probably already know where we're going, John 20, 31. Uh, We'll back up to verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. A lot of stuff Jesus did we don't know about. That's okay. What's given is sufficient. But these are written, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you, reader, may have life in His name. May have life in His name. (coughs) William Hendrickson notes that, notice that everything else remains in the background. Who was the bridegroom? We do not know. Who was the bride? We are not told. In exactly what relation did Mary stand to the wedded pair? Was she perhaps the aunt of bride or groom? Silence again. Did Nathaniel serve as best man, friend of the bridegroom? Nathaniel, we know, is from Cana. I believe that's in John 4, verse 36, maybe. Did Nathaniel serve as best man? Again, on this score, our curiosity receives no satisfaction whatsoever. All the details of that are hidden to us. But in the full light of day stands the Christ. All else is shadow. And that's how we want in our lives. Everything else shadow. Christ shining forth in His glory through us. Christ shining forth through us. Jesus wants me for a sunbeam. He wants me to reflect His glory. Just like the moon reflects the sun. We want to be a bunch of little moons out here. Just reflecting the light of the sun into this dark world. Church, we have a wedding to look forward to with this Jesus as our bridegroom. He's coming back for his bride. From heaven he came and sought her, the hymn writer writes. And he's coming back for his bride one day. Are you a part of his bride or not? Are you a part of his church? The church is his bride. And Jesus, while the, while the, the scriptures never say, God never says in scripture to the singular reader, I love you, over and over again he says, I love my church. I love my church. I love my church. I love my church. The love of the church, the love of God for His church is greater than the love He has for any one of us individually. He loves the whole more than the sum of the parts. And He is coming back for His bride. Are you ready? Is the question. Are you ready? Do you love His church? I always get puzzled when I hear Christians that say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I I don't really have any use for church. I'm like, man, you're telling me you love the bridegroom but hate the bride? How does that even work? What? Where does this come from? The idea that you can be a Christian and yet despise the church and leave it off? Nonsense. The Scripture knows of no such thing. Every, all through the book of Acts we read as Christ is being preached in the, in, the, um, in the first century. Everywhere that Christ is preached, people running to join the churches and, and, and seeking to serve the Lord. And the church numbers are growing. Huge. You know, they had numbers way before the Southern Baptist Convention ever did. But that num- the numbers aren't, aren't trying to tell us that that, there is a, uh, that this church, so-and-so, is bigger than this church. It's not about comparing churches. It's letting us know there's an in and there's an out. There are those included in the number of the saved, and there are those who are not. Again, two families, two extremes. The children of the devil, children of the living God. There's no other third family for you to be in. So we have a wedding to look forward to. Are, have, do you have the invitation? Uh, we read the parables. Of, uh, many are called, few are chosen. There are many excuses people give. Well, well, I've taken, you know, I just bought a yoke of oxen. I got to go out to the field and work them. I can't come to the wedding feast. Jesus gives a parable. And then there's no, I just married a bride. I can't come. 
Timothy and Bethany, that won't be all. I've just married a bride. I can't come. I've got to entertain my bride. She wanted this room repainted over here or whatever. You know, too many, too many details to tend to. No, it's come. Come to the wedding feast. All are invited. The invitation is given without discrimination. So come, eat and drink of the life-giving water that Jesus Christ gives to us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're grateful for your power, your glory that was manifested at uh, Cana. And we thank you that these things were written that we might believe, that we have uh, this glory manifested in the written text to us uh, that we might believe. And I pray that if there are some present here who are not yet believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who do not have faith in his shed blood to cleanse them from their sins and to make them pure and acceptable and righteous before you, I pray that you would send forth your Holy Spirit to regenerate them, to save them by your grace. Oh, Lord, that you would do that work. They would call out to you, seeing themselves as helpless and hopeless apart from you, and that you alone can save, and that because of that, they would cry out to you, Save me, Lord, otherwise I perish. Lord, I pray that you would bless your people now as we go forth this week into the world to um, take part in our jobs and lives and different things, that in in all of these things that, that we have a part in, that we would do them all for your honor, for your glory out of love for you, out of uh, gratitude that you've called us to do them. pray that you would bless my brothers and sisters present here at the Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, that you would uh, lead them by your Spirit, and that you would uh, guide them in straight and narrow ways. I pray that you would uh, strengthen our faith, encourage us, Lord. We are, we are helpless. We are, we are nothing apart from your grace and your mercy. We thank you and we praise you. We love you. We are grateful that you chose to save us. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.